We continue our study through the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 40 through 48, a well-known passage. Uh, in this passage, uh, you'll remember that Jesus has, uh, in, earlier in chapter 8, he's been preaching to the group, the crowds. They are pushing on him so hard that he actually has to get in a boat and kind of move a little off the shore. And then he says, all right, let's, let's head over to the other side. They go over to the other side. When they get there, they're met by the demoniac, and Jesus casts the demons out of him and ends up coming back. Well, when he comes back is where we pick up here. So as Jesus returns, the people, they come and they welcome him, and they've all been waiting for him. So Jesus gets back there, and there's this huge crowd of people that have all just been waiting. Where's, where's Jesus? What happened to Jesus? We've been, we've been waiting for him. He disappeared. He got in a boat. We, where did he go? We figure he'll be back. This group of people, what's interesting is this is the crowd. This is, this is the crowd. The group of folk who Jesus at this moment is pretty much at the height of his popularity. Jesus is a popular figure. Things are, by outward appearance, as the world would judge them, going pretty well. Jesus has got a crowd everywhere he goes. There are people who want to be near him. There are people who want to who get in on the Jesus thing. The problem, of course, is if you actually look at this number of people and say to yourself, how many of these folks are actual, genuine disciples? Ah, that number is a little less. At this point, if you're sick, Jesus will heal you. Well, that, that's good. If you're hungry, it's even possible. Might even get fed. Jesus has been known to feed thousands of people. If you, if you want to get in on a movement, maybe you just want something bigger than yourself. Well, get with Jesus. He's got this movement going. We're not always fully sure where it's going, but that's okay. We can be a part of this thing. If you want to just be, I don't know, you're bored, you want to be entertained. Well, go see Jesus. He's got more stuff going on than you can believe. Just Come, as it were, watch the show. Not that Jesus is doing it for that, but there are people who are there that just want to watch. There are people who just want to be part of whatever's going on. They want to be part of the in thing. And at the moment, Jesus seems to be the in thing. But when it comes time, and it's not very far from this moment into the future, it's going to become clear that following Jesus is going to cost you something. The scribes and the Pharisees are not too far into the future. They are going to declare that anyone who openly adheres to the following, the teachings of Jesus, are going to be put out of the synagogue. <sighs> okay, the minute you're put out of the synagogue in first century Judaism... You are in serious trouble here. Social ties, economic ties, all kinds of things are going to go very bad for you. And what we're going to discover is who are really the serious people and who aren't. We find ourselves with this same kind of movement. It occurs in every society. It occurs in our society. There are things going on. There's the in crowd. And there are people who are always drawn to be part of the in crowd. There are people who, well, they like religious things, kind of, sort of. They like to get in. We, we just went through the holiday season, which 
By the way, you know what holiday stands for, right? There are people out there who are kind of like, you know, I can't stand these religious people. They ruin all the holidays. Uh, yeah, okay. Holiday means holy day. That's what they are. That's, we are celebrating the birth of Christ. That's what's going on here at Christmas. This new year, this is 2020. Well, 2020 years since what? Since Jesus was born, right? The year of our Lord, 2020. That's what we're in. The calendar changed with the birth of Jesus. This is what's going on. But there are people out there who, they just want, they want, oh, they want Christmas, and they want New Year's, but they don't want to really think about the birth of Christ and the transformation that it has had on our culture and society. This is a crowd who is, they gather together because it works for them. This is the crowd who are together because they like what's going on. They like Jesus because for the moment, Jesus does good things for them. He, he heals their sicknesses. He does good teaching. We don't really pay that much attention to what he has to say, but it's nice, you know. And he's, by the way, going after those terrible religious hypocrites, which we can't stand them anyway. And so Jesus goes after them, so that's good. But when it actually comes time to be a disciple, um, no. This is the same crowd, by the way, when the moment comes, crucify him, they'll, they'll say, crucify him. This group of people comes out, and they all want to be near Jesus for the moment. There are two people in this crowd that we're going to see today, and next week too, by the way. There are two people in this crowd, they kind of stand out. These are two desperate people who really need Jesus to do something for them, and there's every reason to think that both of them are not simply there to kind of get in on the in thing. They're there because they believe Jesus can meet the desperate need that both of them have. So the crowd is there, but apparently at the forefront of this crowd is this guy named Jairus. He is an official in the synagogue. It doesn't say that he's the chief teacher. He might not be the actual rabbi, but he's a guy who's prominent in the synagogue. And he is a prominent person in town because this is a Jewish town. And so, and very likely, by the way, this is Capernaum. It doesn't actually say that, but this is where Peter's boat is. This is where they got on the boat, was with Peter. And they're probably sailed right back over to where they left, which is Capernaum. And this is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. This is on that end of the lake. And it's important to recognize the town that they're in because you will recall just a chapter or so ago, back in chapter 7, a centurion, you'll remember, had a servant who was sick. And he came to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus, well, he actually sends messengers to let Jesus know that his servant is sick and if Jesus would heal his servant, he'd be happy about that. Well, Jesus is like, okay. So he starts heading towards the guy's house. Huh? Word gets back to the guy that Jesus is coming to your house. Oh, this is a Gentile centurion. So he sends other messengers and actually comes himself. And when he gets there, he's looking, he talks to Jesus like, look, I, you don't really need to come to my house. I understand how this works. It's not necessary for you to come to my house. He actually says this. This is Luke 7, 8. I, too, am a man under authority. I know how authority works. I'm a centurion. I, I get how this process works. I have soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And I, and I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. So 
I know that all you, you just need to speak the word. That's it. You don't need to come to my house. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. It's, it's, I, I get how your authority works. Jesus responds to this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And of course, those who had been sent returned to the house and found the slave in good health. Yeah. Oh, the Darius. Uh, why did they want Jesus to heal the centurion's servant? They said to him, this guy is a great guy. He's helped us build our synagogue. Okay, Jarius, this is the centurion who helped you build your synagogue, and look at what he did. And if you just paid attention to that, this, this event that we're about to follow could have gone completely differently. So he shows up now, verse 41, uh, Luke 8, 41. There was this guy, this, he came, he's named Jarius. He was an official of the synagogue. He falls at Jesus' feet and begins to implore him to come to my house. Again, you would think he'd just implore him to heal my daughter, which is, he's going to ask for. You're thinking you'd just go, you know, Lord, I saw that centurion. I got the message. I understand. You don't need to come to my house. If you would just say the word, that'd get the job done. Nope. You've got to come to my house. And he actually falls at the feet of Jesus. This is a really serious mark of respect. Now, this is a guy who's prominent in the synagogue. And by this point in the ministry of Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, you will recall, before Jesus even was revealed to Israel, John the Baptist is already getting up and saying to the religious leaders, you bunch of snakes and vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And you will recall the Pharisees and the scribes who observed the ministry of John. None of them got baptized. They, eh, we don't need to be repenting. We, we don't need to repent. We're plenty righteous all on our own. Um, when the Messiah comes, I mean, we don't have to get prepared. We're prepared right now. And, of course, that's part of their entire problem. They, they refuse to admit that they need a Messiah. They refuse to admit that they are sinners. And Jesus will talk to them about that as things unfold. They'll come to him and say, well, what, what about us? <laughs> you think you have no need of a physician, so, sorry, I can't heal you. This group of people only grows more firm in their rejection of Jesus as time goes by. Jesus has already forgiven someone's sins. <laughs> Who is he to forgive people's sins? He's healed people on the Sabbath deliberately. <laughs> How dare you heal people on the Sabbath? By the time this event occurs, Jarius is well aware of how the winds are blowing. There is no doubt that the leadership, now the people, they love Jesus, but the leadership, the, the actual people in charge of the nation, they are all moving very firmly into the against Jesus column. They didn't submit to the baptism of John. Uh, in fact, when Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem, he'll say, they, they say to him, by what authority do you do this? He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. You answer me and I'll answer you. John's baptism, was it a man or God? So they sit around and talk to one another and they say, well, you know, if we say it was of God, he'll ask us why we didn't submit to it. But if he says, if we say it's of men, well, the people will stone us. I mean, everybody knows John was a prophet. So they come back and go, we can't answer. Jesus says, well... Neither do I answer. And, of course, the answer for Jesus is that I'm here with the same authority that John was. I mean, that's the answer. The authority in which John came is the same authority in which Jesus came. 
So they, are, they weren't submitting to John, and they're not submitting to Jesus. We've seen that, by the way, throughout the book of Luke. It's not like this is the first time this has come up. Jesus has done multiple miracles, and there have been multiple times of opposition to what he's doing. Jesus deliberately went out and healed people on the Sabbath. Remember the guy with the withered hand? Remember when we went through that passage? Here's the guy with the withered hand, and they're all sitting around waiting to see if he's going to heal him on the Sabbath. So Jesus, he calls the guy forward, right? Jesus does not deal with this kind of thing in a corner. Jesus goes, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Oh, no. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and says, all right, come, come forward. Stand up. Come forward. And in front of the whole place, Jesus looks around and says, so, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Anybody got anything they want to say about that? And, of course, no one says anything. Of course no one says anything. So Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the guy with the withered hand stretches out his hand and becomes whole. So, technically, Jesus never touched the guy. All he did was stretch out his hand. Who, who can complain about that? But it's all in your face. It's, it's, uh, Jesus is just poking these people in the eye because they claim to represent God, and they don't. They don't represent God. This is not who God is. We're about to see who God is here as we watch what Jesus does in this passage. This is who God is. He's kind and compassionate and gracious. So this guy comes and he falls at Jesus' feet, which, by the way, is a clear public indication that he thinks Jesus is who he says he is. And he asks Jesus, you need to come to my house. You need to heal my daughter. This is a public statement. He is not ascribing that Jesus is some kind of phony, that he can't really get the job done, that he's just deceiving people, or like they're going to come up with here shortly, the crazy idea that, oh, well, we know how you do this. You do this through the power of the devil, which, of course, is like utterly insane. You're kidding me. When did the devil ever give sight to the blind or give hearing to the deaf or allow the dumb to speak? That's not how the devil works. I mean, seriously? Yeah, that's where they went. Not this guy. This guy's daughter is is ill. She's 12 years old. She's on the point of death. And he comes to Jesus. And he's been waiting. Jesus is on the wrong side of the lake, right? Where's Jesus? My daughter has, it doesn't say whether she's been long-term ill or whether she has just suddenly come down with an illness, but whatever it is, there's no doubt she is about to die. This is a life and death situation. And he's come to Jesus. You've got to come. You've got to Lay your hands on my daughter. You've got to, you've got to heal her. Uh, interesting, this passage occurs in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there are additional details given. This guy bows before Jesus. He can, I mean, he gets on his, on his knees. He's begging Jesus. This is a leader of the synagogue. This is a serious statement here. This is a great affirmation of who he thinks Jesus is. So he has this only daughter. She's 12 years old and she's dying. And Jesus agrees to go. Okay. Uh, Jesus is a very busy guy, right? I mean, there's this huge crowd of people. And there's lots of people there for lots of reasons. I'm sure many of them are ill. And Jesus is going to need to heal many of them. But this guy is, you know, is, okay, I'll go with you. All right, let's make our way to your house. So Jesus heads there. Now, you can imagine when they first get started, right, that this guy has got a group of people with him from the synagogue. He's a leader. So, and he's standing at the front of the line. 
When Jesus gets off the boat, he's in the front. But once they head to his house and turn around, well, now we're all at the back. And as Jesus starts making his way through this crowd, this, this event, this account takes a very interesting turn. As they're making their way through the crowd, and you can, you can just imagine it, right? This is just total chaos. Jesus is enormously popular. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone wants to touch him, to touch his robe, to, to just to say they touch Jesus, shake his hand. Whatever. We've seen these kind of, this kind of stuff still goes on to this day. You get famous people and put them out into the crowd, and it's a mob. It's an absolute mob. Well, that's what's going on here. I mean, there's people everywhere. And you can imagine on the shore where they started as they got off the boat. I mean, there's a lot, but as we make our way to this guy's house, we've got to go through town. And the streets are narrowing. And I mean, everybody's clumping together. And okay, in the middle of all of this, there is a woman. Now, this woman has a hemorrhage. She has a bleeding problem. And she's had it now for 12 years. And she couldn't be healed by anyone. Now, you have to get a good idea of just how, you have to understand the Old Testament to understand just how, how tragic this was. Under the Old Testament law, when you go back to Leviticus, and Leviticus chapter 15, it talks about people who have emissions, men and women. Uh, if you have an open running sore, you are ceremonially unclean. And to be ceremonially unclean, that means that anything you touch, anyone you touch, they too become unclean. And in the society in which they live, to be unclean means that you can't go to the temple, you can't go to the synagogue, you can't go in public and just kind of like be in town. You are unclean. If you went into a store to buy something, anything you touched would be unclean. You're unclean. You are more or less a social outcast. Remembering that in the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant is the covenant of blood. The two major events, the Passover and the Day of Atonement, both of those things were celebrations or ceremonies in which we had to think about blood. Uh, when the destroying angel went through the camp to destroy all the firstborn of Egypt, you were to kill the Passover lamb, put its blood on the doorposts and the lintel on the top. And so when the, as the destroying angel was making his way, God would pass over your house and the destroying angel would pass by. But it was the blood when, they, when, they, when the, God saw the blood. The Day of Atonement was the day that you atoned and you shed blood. So the, when you look at all the dedication in the temple, the life is in the blood. We are atoned for by the blood of Christ. So when you start looking at people having a sore that is bleeding... Well, this is, we pay special attention to this under the Old Covenant. 
This is something that we can't just ignore because our entire relationship with God is based on the shedding of blood. Remember, under the Old Covenant, every morning, every evening, they sacrificed a lamb every day. I mean, think about that. From Moses to Jesus, 1,500 years, we sacrificed a lamb every morning and every evening on top of all the other sacrifices. So it was important to pay attention to this issue of blood. It's an, it's an essential thing. And so this woman, it's not like you can just ignore this or move past this. You have to realize that this woman couldn't touch her family. She couldn't touch her husband. Her husband couldn't touch her. Anything she touched, anything she sat on, anything she, anything, it's unclean. And in this culture, if you're unclean, you're in trouble. I mean, it's, hopefully this is just a temporary thing. Okay, this is not a temporary thing. This woman has been in this condition now for 12 years. So Luke and the other Gospels too, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this account, what, what we see here are two people. We got one guy who is as prominent as you could get in the town. He is a leader of the synagogue. He, he is a guy who is well-to-do. Without a doubt, he's rich. Without a doubt, he is held in high regard. Without a doubt, he is greatly respected and honored. And where he goes, people honor him. He, as he walks around town, everyone makes way for him. Everyone listens to what he has to say. He is a prominent, well-to-do, rich, respected person. This woman is the exact opposite. She is anything but that. She is a despised outcast. Without a doubt, she's poverty-stricken. In fact, one of the other Gospels will say that she has spent all of her money trying to get a physician to heal her, and no one can heal her. If anything, she's worse. Luke doesn't say that because Luke's a physician, so, you know, we've got to just... He just says it's incurable. That's what Luke says. But Mark points out that she's, she spent all kinds of money going to all these physicians. This is a woman who is desperate, The ruler's daughter, how old is she? Twelve. This woman's issue, how long has she had it? Twelve years. She's had this issue for as long as he's had his daughter. I mean, just in case you're thinking that, you know, we're making a stretch here, there's no stretch. There is a clear contrast being made here between this rich ruler and this poor woman. This guy is a ruler of the synagogue. She can't even get in the synagogue. He is a leader at the pinnacle. She is the exact opposite. Will Jesus have as much regard for her as he does for the ruler of the synagogue? That's the question. That's the question. She comes up behind Jesus, and verse 44, and she touches the fringe of his cloak. She touches, remember that If you were Jewish, you were supposed to put on the bottom of your robe these little tassels. Remember Moses talks about that? And of course, the Pharisees, they had big tassels because they had to show everyone how religious they were. So Jesus, of course, is going to have one of these robes. And because he is an Orthodox Jew, that's what he is, Jesus has the tassels on his robe too. I mean, Moses did say this is what you're supposed to do. I'm certain Jesus were not overly large. They were the appropriate size. But it was common to put these things on the edge of your 
remember, lots of people wore robes, right? Not just the Jews in the first century. Robes were kind of the thing. But you showed that you were Jewish by this fringe that you put on it with the tassels. So she comes up and she grabs onto one of those. She's thinking, if I can just you know, like grab the tassel of this garment, I, I'm, I'm certain I will be healed. Well, of course, she's right. She approaches Jesus with great faith that if I come to him, Jesus has the power to heal. There's no doubt about it. He's healed all kinds of people. Surely he can heal me. And so she touches him and she feels within herself. I mean, whatever her problem is, and it never says exactly what her problem is, but whatever her problem is, it immediately is healed. And she knows it. Now, Jesus could have handled this situation a number of ways. She got healed. Okay. Jesus knows that this guy's daughter is really ill, and he's a prominent guy, and she's kind of an outcast, and, you know, maybe we should just let her get healed and, you know, go on our way here. No need to stop the procession and make a big fuss out of this, right? Um, No, actually, that is not what Jesus does. In fact, Jesus stops and says, all right, who, who touched me? Now, <clears throat> good old Peter, right? Peter says that thing that everyone's thinking, and everybody else knows better than to say it, but not Peter. Uh, you know, Lord, um, there's a mob here. I mean, what do you mean, who touched you? What kind of a question is that? What do you mean, everybody in the place has touched you. Maybe he doesn't say it quite that bad. But he does say, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. I mean, come on, just look around the places. It's a mob here. What do you mean, who touched you? What kind of a question is that? And why would you stop this procession? Don't you understand, this guy is the leader in the synagogue here. We're we're going to heal his daughter. You don't want to just stop because somebody touched you, do you? Uh, Yes. Yeah, actually, Jesus does. Jesus knew. Now, here's another interesting thing. Lots of people are touching Jesus. Peter's correct about that. There is a mob scene. But you know, only this woman actually gets the power. She believes. She believes. And so, Jesus releases the power that she's looking for. Oh, lots of people are touching Jesus, but she actually understands that this will work. So, according to her faith, so it was done for her. That's, that's what faith is. That, is you, do you have a big God? He does big things. Do you have a little God? He only does little things. It's amazing what God will do for us when we believe God will do it for us. I don't, by the way, think that um, Jesus, and he's not here, and we don't have anybody we can touch who's going to physically heal us. But the fact is, you can still pray to God and ask him to intervene on your behalf. And he just might. He might not. I mean, eventually everyone, you know, this woman, too, got old and died. I mean, it happens. Our physical illness, by the way, is not the worst of our problems. We have many other problems. Um, Although, no one wants to be ill, right? So they're all denying it. Everybody's like, I don't know. know. It wasn't me. Jesus said, someone touched me. I know because I felt the power go out of me. Yes, lots of people were touching me, but there was someone in this crowd who, and of course Jesus knows that. This is like God in the garden, right? God shows up in the garden with Adam and Eve, and here Adam and Eve, who have completely lost their spiritual brains, I mean, what? 
what? What happened to your theology? You know God is the creator of, of the heavens and earth, and you're out here trying to hide from him in the bushes? Seriously? You really think hiding in the bushes is going to hide you from God? What in the world? Yeah, they're, they sinned, right? As soon as they sinned, they spiritually died. Their theology went out the window. So it's the same thing. God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? Now, God doesn't say that because he doesn't know where Adam is. This isn't for God. This is for Adam. What are you going to do, Adam? Are you going to come out here and say, oh, I can't believe I did the exact thing you told me not to. Can you forgive me? Can we somehow put this back together? Can you? Oh, no. Does Adam do any of that? No. <laughs> no, that's not what Adam does. Starts blaming God and his wife. And anyway, that's its own story. Come tonight. You know, we're doing Genesis. Same thing here. When Jesus turns around and says, someone touched me, he knows who it was. He knows exactly who it was. But there's an issue here. This woman is a social outcast. This woman hasn't been to the synagogue in 12 years. This woman can't go to the temple. This woman can't celebrate the feast. She can't celebrate the Passover. She can't celebrate the Day of Atonement. She can't enter into the worship of the children of Israel, even though she is one of the children of Israel. She can't enter into society. She is an outcast. She shouldn't be here. She shouldn't be part of this group of people. Everyone she touched was made unclean if they'd have known who she was. She had no business being in this crowd. But she was. She didn't care. I've got to get to Jesus. And Jesus loves this woman. Jesus grants her what she wants. But she needs more. She doesn't just need to be physically healed. Great as that is. She needs more than that. So when the woman saw that uh, she hadn't escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. This is the second person in this account that's fallen down before Jesus. Remember the Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, he's come and fallen down before Jesus too. And declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him. You wonder if everybody kind of stepped back, right? Where he's like, oh, oh, wait a minute, that's her. But that's the whole point. This is why Jesus made sure that publicly she declares who she is and declares the issues that she's had so that she can tell everyone she's been healed. This woman needs restoration. This woman needs to be brought back into the fold. This woman needs more than just physical healing. This is, can you imagine? Can you imagine being a social outcast? But she's been for 12 years. Jesus understands the whole situation. Jesus heals the whole person. It's not just a matter of getting our physical illnesses better. It's good. Who wants to be ill? But there are other things. We need to be part of the community of God. And Jesus wants to bring her back into the community. Jesus wants her fully restored, not just physically healed, but restored. Part of what's going on here. She's been an outcast. So let's bring her back. And that's what Jesus does. He says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is that great mixture, right, between our faith and God's works. As to her faith, so it was done to her. And 
If we go after that, we're like, well, I'm going to figure that out. Okay, dissecting that doesn't help. But don't dissect it. Don't try to cut that all up. The fact is that we have faith and God acts. This is how this works. God acts according to our faith. The centurion believed Jesus could heal at a distance. So he did. Jairus thinks, oh, no, you've got to come touch my daughter. Otherwise, she can't be healed. Okay. Okay. Jesus says, all right, let's, let's go. I'll, you know, let's make our way through the crowd. We'll, we'll see if we can get there. Oh, and we won't get there till next week. But, I mean, you all know the story, right? Before Jesus can get there, she dies. Could have avoided that, you know, if you'd have just come to Jesus with the same faith that the centurion had. If you could have just said to Jesus, you know, my daughter is ill and you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word and I'll, I'll run home and we can all rejoice. That's not what he says. He says, you've got to touch her. Okay. Jesus is going to release the power when I touch her. I mean, that's your faith. That's, if that's what you think, okay, that, we're, we're going to go with that. What's interesting here is that when we look at the Gospels, big picture, we say to ourselves, what is God like? Do we understand the nature of God better through this account? And we do. And what we understand is that God doesn't really care the leader of the synagogue or the unclean outcast. God is going to take care of both of them. God is, Jesus is interested in both of them. When we look at the miracles that Jesus does, really stop and think for a second about how this could go. Jesus came to declare to the nation that he is their Messiah. And the miracles help them understand, well, actually they didn't, but they were supposed to help them understand. You know, when the disciples of John come and say, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? Well, okay, watch. So, you know, the deaf hear and the lame walk and the blind see and the dumb speak and the gospel is preached to the poor. And he says, go tell John the things you've seen and heard. And these are the works that he's doing. Look at those works. Remember that there were any number of works that Jesus could have done. it, it, It defies imagination what Jesus might have done. Jesus could have said, all right, I'm going to darken the sun. Sun, dark. That's it. Pitch black. Just just like that. Pitch black. Jesus could have said, um, you know, I can make an elephant appear. Elephant, right there. And, you know, there would have been an elephant right there. Jesus could have said, all right, let me... uh, let me levitate. Here, give me just a second. I'll, uh, okay, here we go. And now Jesus is two, three feet off the ground. When you let your imagination go, Jesus could have just disappeared. You know, there's all kinds of miracles that Jesus could have unquestionably done that would have brought people to an acknowledgement that this guy is the power of God. It's just no one can do this but God. Okay, what does he actually do? He heals the sick. His miracles are personal. He loves people. He reverses the curse. He shows compassion and kindness and tenderness and love. And he makes lives that are terrible better. He calms the storms. He feeds the hungry. 
He takes care. He, he weeps for people. When he, gets to the, when he gets to the tomb of Lazarus, he knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows that Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. But, but he gets there and he weeps. Why? Because everyone is there weeping. And it's just this recognition of what death and, and if you've had a loved one die, if you've had mom, dad, brother, sister, you know, dear friends die, you've, you've stood at the grave and wept. You know. And Jesus enters into that sorrow and weeps, not just for Lazarus. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead here in a minute. He weeps for all the tears that have been shed. Why? Because he cares for us. He's moved with compassion. At the end, he's on the Mount of Olives and he looks out and, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Jesus is compassionate and loves people. He loves, God loves us. And he doesn't care whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're a social outcast or whether you're popular. God loves everybody. And if we will simply come to him, he will take care of us. No guarantees he'll heal all of our illnesses by any means. But he will comfort us. He will give us a peace that passes all understanding. He will give us insight into the fact that when this life is all done, great rewards can be ours. If we will just rejoice and pray and love God and act out of the gratitude of our hearts for what he has done for us. Jesus is this great, faithful high priest. If you're going through hard times, if you're having great difficulties, he knows. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to be lied about. He knows what it is to be misunderstood, to feel like you're just trying to do the right thing and life is coming down on you. Jesus knows exactly what that's like because that's exactly what happened to him. We can come to Jesus and pray to him and he will work in our lives and he will be there for us and he will be the great compassionate high priest because that's who he is. It's a great passage. The great prominent guy who we'll get more to next week. And the lowly outcast woman. He loves them both. And answers them both. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the God that you are. That you genuinely care for us. You care about our physical difficulties. Even though you don't promise to heal every illness we have, not in this life anyway. You do watch over us. You care when we hurt. You use our suffering to earn us great reward in eternity. So Lord, as we face this life and this world, and as the hardships and the trials, which invariably will come to us, when they show up, may we look to you and find our hope and our our comfort and our peace in who you are. Lord, we thank you that it doesn't matter whether we're rich or poor or prominent or outcasts. You love us and you pay attention and you care for us. 
and you want to restore us. So, Lord, may we come to you and find your great mercy and grace there. Lord, we pray for those folks in our assembly. Uh, we think of Cindy, who's going in for surgery tomorrow, and Truma, who is not with us today, and Betty, who also isn't with us because just struggling physically. Lord, watch over those folks and others who I'm sure are also facing great physical difficulties you maybe aren't saying anything. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful and kind and compassionate and take care of the folks around them and give them the strength they need. Lord, thank you for being the God you are. May we always be motivated by gratitude for what you have done for us. We pray in the precious name of Jesus who gave his very life for us. Amen.